Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Small Talk No More. I'm Alex, and this week I had the pleasure of talking to Claire McCauley, Vice President at Warner Music. I actually had to pre-record this introduction as um, Claire and I did not follow any script for this interview. So we spoke about all things from what is needed for an artist to be noticed by Warner, opportunities for writers, and what's at the end of all this craziness going on around the world. So without any further ado, we dive right into one of the questions I had about video games. Enjoy. I I just had a, a question about uh, video games, but just out of curiosity. Uh, so I'm not sure how involved you are on that front, but um, what is... Um, your position, I, I guess, Warner's position in, in the games right now? Because, you know, there's a lot of shit going on with games. Everyone's waking up to the fact that games are not just a nerd thing to do. Like, there's a lot of opportunities for artists. So what... Um, I, I know that you guys have a actual company, so Warner Games, that, that, you know, you're building your own games as well. So but I would like to know, it's like, what is the is uh, your position in that front? Is that something that has been a priority or is it staying exactly the same as it's been for the past few years? Or um, do you, is that is that something that, that you could answer? Um, so I don't work specifically on, say, the licensing side of mm-hmm. Warner Chapel, um, but I can say that gaming has been you know, going through a complete boom as an industry and particularly when it comes to the music that's used. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have a fantastic um, licensing team that's really committed to not only placing our music, but coming up with new opportunities as well Mm -hmm. um, for our writers, which, which I think is great. And, you know, it's, the explosion is something that we need to remain very much a part of. Um, and if you ever wanted more details about that, I'd happily put you in touch with uh, our licensing team mm-hmm. who would, I'm sure, be happy to share more details and insights on that front. Cool. No, yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, just because all of that, uh, all the past few months, I've actually spoken to a lot of my friends in games. And um, one of the guys that I work with, he's, you know, main revenue comes from making music for games. A lot of it is under his personal name, not his artist name. And some other stuff is also white labeled. So, but, you know, the whole thing is that that's been something that I was trying to use for a long time to try and pitch him to other projects. And then people will, and I still remember, and and I started working with him in 2018 and people will look at me like, you know, I'm not interested. Whilst now we're getting a lot of uh, requests um, from, you know, other companies. We're doing arena shows in Taiwan. We did a 20,000 people show two weeks ago. Um, and um, all of this comes just because, again, like I see the companies are kind of waking up to the fact that games is not just a nerd thing to do. And it's just my own learning just to see how different companies are reacting in, in the business. And, not not at all. I think it's very much a part of the mainstream. And then I think also, I mean, we're, we haven't even gotten, gotten touched on this, but when you look in at the VR side and, and how that's mm-hmm. enhancing gaming, um, that's a whole area of opportunity, I would say. 
Um, it's been fantastic to see how the prevalence of music um, in games has grown over the mm. past you know, decade, I'd say, or even longer. Um, and, and you rightly touched on something which is, particularly from a songwriting angle, um, a wonderful opportunity for established writers to explore a different avenue of writing. Mm. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, or well, the main reason why I work on this side of the business is because there's lots of different ways in which music and composition and songwriting can be applied. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, you could be a, a very well-known songwriter, but then be writing an un, under an AKA for mm. games or yeah. some sort of other audiovisual media. Um, and, and it's a great way to diversify your income streams as a writer. Um, and then the whole VR experience is, is fascinating as well, particularly now with the rise of live streaming mm. um, and seeing how we can incorporate that into enhanced user experiences, you know, or not even user, but also just audience experience mm. um, as a virtual audience. Um, so yeah, there's, I think it's a wealth of opportunity. I don't think the growth is going to slow down anytime soon. I can mm. imagine that it, it will, it will, you know, keep going, which is great. It's great to have, have those uh, growth areas, um, particularly at a time like now. Okay. Um, now, that, now that you're talking about live streaming um, and, you know, I just wanted to, to touch on this super quick is what, what, what is your perception of live streaming? Like it, does that uh, for you, does, does it relate to dollar signs or is it something that is still, you know, really farther down the line because there's a lot of things that need to be developed, such as, you know, royalty collection out of uh, streaming and, and all of that. I think in terms of revenue collection, the infrastructure certainly there. So, you know, digital um, streaming or use online is, is no longer new for us. So from a really like specific operational side, like the infrastructure is there to collect the revenue. Um, the the challenges are in making sure that all platforms are correctly licensed. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a publisher, our interest is always going to be in protecting the value of the underlying songs within those licenses. Um, the internet, as you know, is this, you know, uh, infinite sort of yeah. universe. Um, so it's very difficult to keep track of you know every single um performance that might be taking place or new platform that's launching um but working in partnership with some incredible companies uh you know they're we are able to trace those performances um and that's Mm. something that you know we're certainly looking at um and there have been you know there's been a focus on this i'd say since the pandemic really hit, um, I think creators and artists saw promotion of live content as a way to engage their fans when they really had no other options. Mm. Uh, And that's been fantastic to watch the growth of. Um, I think we need to, to transition from sort of that fan engagement to putting on larger productions and, that's certainly a direction of travel for the industry. It's like all those kind of sofa sessions have been fantastic. And I think they provide this really wonderful insight into a creator's life that you otherwise maybe don't have. 
Um, but there's still a craving and a desire and a need to produce those, um, you know, something comparable to an arena show, just as you were talking about before. Like you want to try and bring that experience as much as you possibly can to mm. your audience. Um, and so that's that's been fascinating. And that definitely represents a world of opportunity, particularly further down the line. So, you know, we believe that live live performance, in-person live performance will return at scale once a vaccine is made available. And at that point, when people are able to attend and participate um, in music in person or at in-person events, then we'll have this great ancillary revenue stream with live stream performances um, as well. So particularly with ticketed performances, you could sell tickets online and you could sell tickets in person. We've just opened up a whole new world of opportunity. Um, As we transition, however, it's certainly been difficult, particularly because we just don't have live performances taking place on the scale that we used to. Um, And not only that, when you have the closure of businesses and restaurants, all of those, all of those places have have licenses in place to play and broadcast music. And with all of those closed, there's a knock-on impact. So it's, it's so far beyond just those big live events. There's also, um, you know, the kind of small, it's not a smaller side in, in, in terms of the amount of money that it brings in, but I think it's not something that's as prevalent in the public's mind, perhaps. Okay. So what, what are the boxes that a artist needs to tick um, now in order to be, um, uh, receive interest from a publisher? Because like what you mentioned, and normally, you know, there will be a, um, the condition of, you know, a certain amount of revenue coming in and obviously performance royalties is something that is going to, you know, be seen like a bit of a uh, decline um, for next year. So what are the boxes? So is this, is this something that is on review? Is this something that, uh, from your perspective, are you reviewing the boxes that needs to be ticked for an artist to be um, receiving interest from you guys from Warner? Or does that still stay the same that it was before the pandemic? Uh, do you mean in terms of the way in which we were licensing music and, and stream live performances? Or, or you do you mean more in terms of um, what we'd be looking for songwriters to deliver. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, okay. Yeah, uh, I guess I'm focusing in there just because there will be so artists that are used to, you know, getting revenue from performing, they will have to have shifted towards writing more and trying to get more briefs and, you know, focusing their time onto generating money out of, you know, being in their house. Um, and so, again, what would be those boxes that an artist that is not performing at all needs to tick in order to, you know, be considered for any, you know, bigger deal now that they cannot really be out there? Um, sure. So the beauty of publishing is that it's it supports a very diverse spectrum of mm-hmm. um, exploitation, right? So a song could be played on the radio or a theatrical performance could evolve mm-hmm. out of a piece of music. A score might be written for a film. You have live, you have releases happening in a physical and a digital sense. There's all these applications of music, um, which 
again, is one of the main reasons why I work in publishing. You have this breadth of usage available, which Mm -hmm. means that you can, and a writer can diversify its streams of revenue. So we, you know, we think less about a, a series of boxes that a writer has to tick and more about really their talent in songwriting. And we then see that as our duty as a publisher to find and create those opportunities. So some of those, you know, not all of those opportunities, but we have an obligation to work on behalf of our writers to say, hey, have you considered working in the in the media space, like scoring for for film and TV perhaps? Or, you know, have you thought about co-writing with this person? Or if, if you're a, a writer artist, have you thought about writing for other people? Hmm. And so we're able to open up those opportunities to our writers. Um, and we, we don't have the expectation that they arrive as a Warner Chapel writer with all of that in the bag. You know, that's what we see we see that as something that we can offer to our writers. And of course we have established catalogs and there's, um, you know, established streams of revenue coming in because they're very popular, but we're still working the catalog. Like that, that's Mm. the job of a publisher is to find those sources of um, exploitation for our writers and, and to come up with creative ways of, of creating new intellectual property too. So Mm -hmm. maybe we find a sample or, Maybe um, we find someone to do a really cool cover or I I see the possibilities are really limitless. Um, So I think, yeah, it's less about getting a prepackaged box ticked (laughs) writer in the door and and more about looking at all of those opportunities. And of course, finding the right opportunities for the right writers, you know, like Mm. it's, there's not a one size fits all solution. This is really interesting, Claire, just because, um, you know, every time I talk to John Ozia, so last time I spoke to him was probably like a month ago, uh, and we had this conversation about the fact that he signs new talent based on, does this song make me want to get off my chair, or am I just listening to music? And it's, it, it, it's kind of that sort of topic around that the focus is on the music and not on the money. So if a song makes you feel something, it's, you know, money material. If it's, you know, doesn't really make you feel anything, you just need to let it go. Now, my, I guess the question that I've got for you is, how does this affect onto um, younger A&R professionals? Do you think that this is an ongoing thing? Do you think that there's that trend? to focus a lot on the numbers more than listening to something and being confident to say, yeah, this song is fucking great. I'm just going to get it. I, I think if you talk to our A&R staff, they, they would give you that, uh, you know, that a similar response of like, how does this, how does this make you feel? Like, I don't think you're ever going to get away from that, right? Like you can never get away mm. from that. The real creativity of of writing and yes we have all these tools available now like providing us with insight over like where something's been streamed what territory it's most popular in like the sales data um which of course of course is something that we look at um but 
I think you always are going to need a blend of the two. You're going to need someone who has a really good gut feeling about a writer and, and sees opportunity as well, like the potential for opportunity. Like I was saying earlier, um, there is an art to developing uh, a writer. So we're not necessarily always looking for this belief orange package. Um, mm-hmm. And also being a publisher the size of Warner Chapel, we of course have Frontline, we have Catalog, we then um, have broadcast uh, admin deals, mm-hmm. and we have production music, which is very much spoke, um, focused on music for media. Um, so we don't, we're not looking for one type of music or one type of writer over another. It's quite a diverse portfolio. And then we have experts working in each of those areas to make sure that we're um, providing the best service for those writers mm-hmm. and and looking really holistically at the opportunities a new writer might, might um, be able to achieve. So I think it very much depends on the, the area of the business. But yeah, I think if you if you speak to people in A and R, and that's not my background, so I mm. do want to caveat that by um, saying that the gut feeling and that gut instinct still counts for a lot, you know, and and that feeling you get absolutely when you listen to a piece of music. Um, so it, it's a it's a coupling of you know insight and data, but also having a really good gut and feel for um, what's going to be what's going to be popular in which particular areas and which particular genres. Hmm. Okay. Um, so then now talking, talking about the fact that, you know, you know, it's not particularly your background. Now you've got this, um, you know, leadership position. Um, so how has been the journey to get there? So how has been your journey? Uh, you know, who's taking you by the hand and then helped you move to the next step, you know, mentors, uh, challenges. How has been that journey from when you started your career, or when you were still at Berkeley, and then moving on to who you are right now? Yeah. So it's it's funny. While I while I haven't worked on the kind of in quotations creative side of mm. our business, I came from the creative side. As in, I was a musician and I was a creator. And once upon a time, a long, long time ago, wrote some songs as well. So I so I. I like to pride myself on having that empathy and understanding of the songwriting process. Mm. Um, and it's songs that have always resonated for me. So from a very early age, it's the storytelling aspect of songwriting pulled me in. Um, I loved stories as a child and I loved the music that my mom in particular played at home. And seeing the similarities between reading and writing stories, which I used to dictate to my mom, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure oh, she really? loved that, loved being my scribe. Um, and then seeing that translate in music. Um, and I, you know, I loved poetry as well. And, you know, music is poetry set to, set to music, you know, it's, um, so I, so I think that that's very much at my core and that was very much the driver and always has been for me to work on this side of the business. Um, translating, um, you know, a song or a piece of music into any number of creations uh, is a real thrill and joy. And then ensuring that writers receive a livelihood 
from their music is really my guiding principle. Like I, mm-hmm. I very strongly believe in that. It's what makes me get out of bed every day and do what I do. Uh, and I think that all kind of stems from, like you say, my time at Berkeley and even before that. Um, the journey into publishing began with a temp job I had <laughs> at BMG, the the old BMG before it was um, you know reincarnated. Mm-hmm. And I worked in copyright. Um, BMG at the time was unpurchased by Universal Music Publishing. Um, so yeah. I then went on to work for Universal. Uh, I worked for an incredible lady called Jackie Alway, um, who's still at Universal. She was heading up their legal division at the time, and the legal team took a chance on me. Um, there's another lawyer who I worked directly for called Simon Hotchkiss. He taught me everything I needed to know about drafting and contracts. Um, so that was a really great opportunity. Uh, and then I moved back into copyright. Um, uh, an administration, um, managing one of the teams at Universal, and then um, switched directions slightly and uh, was approached about a role back in business and legal affairs, but in advertising. So mm-hmm. I worked for Media Arts Lab, which is a subsidiary of TBWA, um, and they work exclusively for Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really interesting experience, sort of seeing how music was used and licensed um, from the other side. And I got to work specifically on music projects, which I loved. Um, I was only there a short time, however, before, before I was approached about um, the general manager position at the Music Publishers Association. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, Jane Dyball, uh was a lady that I had long admired, um, didn't know on a personal sense. Um, but she was the CEO of the MPA group of companies. Um, and I really looked at that as an opportunity to to learn from the best, in my opinion. Um, and the MPA, for me, really was an opportunity to explore all areas of music publishing. Um, and I've never necessarily been wedded to one side of our business or another. I've always had an interest in, in policy uh, and in copyright law. Um, which is very much at the focus of the MPA, as well as education and promoting awareness about our industry as well. So it ticked a lot of boxes for me. Um, it, it represented a completely um, different, um, you know, d- direction. Uh, but I'm very glad that I did that. And so I was a general manager at the MPA throughout the um, MPS tender process. So that was another another great experience to mm-hmm. learn from. Um, and then took a career break, which I highly recommend to anyone. Um, I didn't take a, a gap year when I was younger. This is where money, you know, we come back to that money question. Yeah. Where money would have been really useful when I was younger. Um, so I took a year, a year off um, just to fall back in love with music as a fan and as a musician again, um, to spend some time traveling and see family that were spread across the world. Mm-hmm. So that was great. I came back and um, I did some consultancy work for a small music production company in Soho. So again, that was really gr- it was a really great culmination of the sort of strategic side of what I had done at the MPA um, with a return to sort of that advertising background that I'd, I gained it at um, Media Arts Lab. Um, because the focus very much there was on the placement of their music in mm-hmm. um, media. So that was a great, great little consultancy gig for a while. Very much 
love the people that I worked with. Um, and then the opportunity at Warner Chapel um, came up. So I started at Warner Chapel at the end of 2018. And then from the beginning of this year, took on an expanded role overseeing um, our administration division globally. Hmm. So it's been a it's been an interesting journey. Um, I've taken I've I've taken some side steps along the way, and um, you know, one of the pieces of advice I I always give to people um, if they ask for it is be curious. You know, don't stay in your lane. Um, Mm -hmm. Learn about other areas, and uh, you know, make the music business your business. If you're a writer, or if if you work in publishing. Really understand the ecosystem um, and ask lots of questions, right? Like it's, uh, you don't learn anything if you don't ask questions. I think I'm naturally interested in how everything fits together. Mm-hmm. So I very much enjoyed every position I, I've ever had and feel very fortunate to have had a helping hand um, from several people along the way. And I, I have a little group of music publishing angels um, that I refer to. And there's there's a... There's a group of women that have been particularly supportive throughout my career okay. um, and done small things, just, you know, like advocated a little bit on my behalf or opened a door here or there or, you know, been a shoulder to cry on sometimes when things have gotten tough. Uh, but I have to, you know, I have to say that that's counted for a lot. Um, there, I've had some great people supporting me along the way. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question. There's something that you, you mentioned um, the reason why you took a gap year, which is to fall fall in love again with music. Um, and I find really interesting as well the fact that music was so embedded in you since you were a child. And then, you know, you went into one of the, you know, most respected universities in the world for music. And now you are a big boss in the business. <laughs> so my question is, um, how much of an internal conflict there was when you first move from being an artist, a creative onto the business. And how, what, what was it that made you feel in conflict again saying, I, I'm going to take this gap year so then I can fall in love back again with music. There was obviously two conflicts, one from creative to business, but then another one they said, yeah, I need to go back to my creative side so then I can actually do better what, what I want to do. Yeah, I don't want to speak on behalf of all creative people, obviously, but I do oh, sometimes yeah. think that there's a there's a theme of like conflict that that can arise in, in lots of different um, ways. I think I've been very, I think the way I was brought up, I was very fortunate to to have parents actually that came from very different backgrounds to each other, and mm-hmm. so I, I had these examples of people who live their lives differently. And I never, I never felt restricted in options. But I think my dad was very nervous when I said, ha, I'm going to go work in music and that's what I want to do. And I got to study music. He was like, whoa, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is risky business. But my mother, um, very creative, did lots of different things in her life. Um, just always encouraged me. So, so I think that actually was very helpful because I, mm. I could see, I was able to see how both of those things fit together, like a kind of a, a more traditional business um, career path with retaining this sort of open-mindedness around creativity. So I'm not sure I actually ever really had a, a conflict per se. Um, 
there was definitely a point where I was doing both. I was gigging a lot and I was working. And I decided to to take a step away because I, I found from a creative point of view that I was too wrapped up in performing. And actually, I wanted to have space for other things in my life. Um, and I never, I never regretted that decision. Like things were going quite well. Um, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to, to give the time to other areas of my life, not just what I was doing in, in terms of a career. Mm -hmm. Um, and over the years, I think the, um, the extent to which music has featured in my life on a personal level has varied. Um, and by the point that I left the MPA, I, I had just had a, a run of it not featuring as highly, perhaps, as I needed it to. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't working at a publisher. And while I really enjoyed the experience of working um, for a trade body, it's not the same as working for a music publisher. Like when you work for a publisher, you have that day to day contact mm-hmm. um, with or I would say connection with the music. Working for the MPA, I had the opportunity to represent the entire um, UK music publishing industry, which is such a privilege. But it wasn't, it wasn't working on behalf of the writers directly. Okay. And I think that's the piece that I was missing. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to carve out a bit more time for myself as well, just to go, you have this opportunity, take it, find the time to go to as many festivals as you want to and, uh, and dive right back into playing with other people as well. Um, and also making, making the, making the time to travel and pursue other interests too. Mm -hmm. Um, so not, not so much conflict. I just say there's just different degrees to which the creative element has featured over the years. Hmm. Okay. Um, let me ask you one last question now, which is, you know, we, we've already spoken about, um, you know, the sort of work that's been done around, uh, you know, collecting royalties and, you know, the, all the other different opportunities for writers um, out there. So, and, you know, the way that the publisher could, you know, help develop extra revenue streams for writers. So um, I guess a question that I've got for you is, is there anything new or any opportunities to look forward to as a writer is this a really t- is is this a good time to be a music maker or um do you think there's still going to be a bit of a bump in the road until we can actually get back to you know musicians earning enough to carry on with our art i i always like to think that there's there's new opportunities out there and the wonderful thing about working in a creative industry is you're surrounded by creative people and they have limitless ideas. So while the inspiration may sometimes dry up, <clears throat> invariably we find a solution and we find solutions and we find mm. new ways to um, enjoy music. So I would say it's certainly tough, but I had a conversation with a writer the other week and she said to me, I've never been so prolific. Like I'm collaborating with my producer partner from home more mm-hmm. effectively than we ever were able to do in a studio. Like 
we have to navigate the challenges of homeschooling and different things like that. But actually, scheduling-wise, it's really simplified things and it's enabled us to really partner in a way that we didn't before. We've been running a series of um, uh, songwriter camps and sessions that have gone down really well during this mm. period. Um, and and that's really exciting. You know, like the, the world truly is global now in more ways than I think we ever could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's the technology there to support that, which is really exciting. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. We just need to remain sort of focused on how we're going to continue to derive the maximum value for our songwriters. And that's a lot of collaborative efforts. We have to work with our third-party licensees. We have to work very carefully and closely with um, societies around the world. Um, we obviously have to work with our fellow publishers as well and rights mm-hmm. holders. Um, I think we, you know, finding the common ground and and the points that we can agree on um, will provide the best springboard for future collaboration and opportunities for our writers. Okay, um, so I, I quite I quite like your your optimism there, and I think there's um, it's really cool to hear that from from your perspective as well because again, you know, it, it's a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we had the UK government uh, advising creatives to change careers. Like, you know, making music is not the job. Go work in the city, you know, find yourself a new job um, or a real job, quote unquote. Um, so it's um, quite reassuring to hear someone like you to say, you know, there's, there's opportunities out there. There's, uh, you know, Whatever is going on in the world does not mean this uh, halt to creativity. And actually, what you're saying is like, I'm making more music now. I'm collaborating in complete other ways that had not collaborated before. And um, I think that it's, uh, you know, a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel that you bring in there. So I think it's, um, I guess really positive and, and reassuring. So it's really cool. Um, I, I think you have you have to remain optimistic, but I also think we have to be realistic about the challenges too. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's certainly not been an an easy time for people, but I think there are enough encouraging stories and partnerships that we're seeing. Um, you know that that will weather the storm. The music industry has been through some hugely significant ups and downs over the years. I mean, digital totally changed our business. Mm. And, you know, we got through that. And the great news is that's probably going to be the thing that's that's responsible for creating even more opportunities. So <clears throat> we need a little time to, to finesse and figure things out. You know, over the summer, there were all these great, like, socially distanced concerts that were taking mm-hmm. place. I mean, Tomorrowland went virtual and sold over a million tickets. Like, I I mean, these things are really incredible. Erica Badu launched her own like streaming platform. There's so many examples of where I think you go, wow, look at that and look at that and look at this. And hey, that's coming up. It's it's almost overwhelming, like the amount of um, different different, um, ideas that are springing up. But I think that's what gives me the optimism. I, I really believe in our industry and I believe in the people in it. I believe in the people at Warner Chapel to, to come up with those ideas and to, to do our job and support our songwriters. Hmm. Cool. Um, well, Claire, thank you so much. I kind of realized that 
we didn't really follow a <laughs> an actual step. I, 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 I'm quite happy. I feel, I feel like, yeah, you're, you're the type of person you can just talk to and it's um, both inspirational and also really relaxed and very friendly. So um, there we go. That's a, I guess, I guess that's the interview there. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you so much. No worries. And that's the end of the chat. Obviously, there was a lot going on, but I just decided to keep this bit as I thought it was the most interesting where we get to understand the insights from a senior executive at a publishing company, as well as understanding what is the journey to get there. Join me next week for another unscripted conversation with Tom Willis from Lateral Management. See you then.